time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure to be here. You and I have been following a fascinating case as it has worked its way through the courts with respect to whether it's possible for a person to, in effect, buy a lake by buying land all around the lake and then not allowing any person to traverse that lake, having the effect of making the lake itself private despite what others may wish. And there has been an update on that story, hasn't there? Indeed, there has. Uh, and uh, the last update uh, we had on it uh, was a uh, David versus Goliath. But uh, I guess, sadly, for all of the Davids out there, uh, the latest from the B.C. Court of Appeal has uh, reversed uh, what appeared to be a uh, a victory for the Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club. Um, and this has been a battle between the Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club, small group of people, uh, and the Douglas Lake Cattle Company. Uh, which owns the largest ranch uh, anywhere in Canada. Uh, and it's a company owned by a Stan Kroenke, who's a U.S. billionaire uh, who owns, amongst other things, the L.A. Rams. So rich guy owns enormous ranch. Uh, and for many years, uh, uh, Mr. Kroenke and the Douglas Lake Cattle Company uh, have been trying to prevent uh, people, including members of the Fish and Game Club, from accessing these two lakes, which are clearly, and everyone agrees, owned by the province. They're public. Uh, but the ranch is so big, it completely subsumes both lakes. You can't get to the lakes without crossing the land of the ranch. Hmm. Uh, now, there is a road which goes near the lakes, and then a trail which would go from the road to the lakes. And so uh, the Fish and Game Club, uh, was arguing that, hey, there's a public right to access the public lakes. The fish are owned by the public. The lakes are owned by the public. How can it be that nobody can get to the publicly owned uh, lakes? Uh, and they succeeded in that argument uh, at uh, trial. And it involved uh, analyzing, the judge analyzing, the original crown grant of land, uh, which eventually was purchased by the uh, enormous ranch, the billionaire. And so it involved looking back at maps going back to 1895, which would show the then boundaries of the lake and where the road went and the trail, and then analyzing whether what the Crown granted included uh, the road, the trail, the lakes, what was given up by the Crown and what wasn't. Um, and uh, unfortunately for the uh, fish and game people, uh, the Court of Appeal concluded that the trial judge was uh, mistaken in his conclusion about uh, what all was kept by the provincial government. Essentially, the Court of Appeal concluded that, yes, indeed, the lakes were not uh, given over as private property. The lakes and lake bed and fish and all of that is owned by the public. And indeed, the Court of Appeal found that the road, uh, which goes through the ranch, uh, again, uh, was not uh, uh, subject to that original Crown grant. Uh, and moreover, the public has paid over various times to maintain and fix up the road. So the public is entitled to use the road. And I should say in this regard, uh, the billionaire and the giant ranch uh, has done what they can to stop people from doing that. In the past, they put up a gate, which they eventually took down. They piled logs on the road. Uh, those were apparently removed in 2019. Uh, and uh, the Court of Appeal found that the public is entitled to use the road, 
and the public's entitled to use the lake. But sadly, that's of uh, a bit of cold comfort because the public is not entitled to use the trail to get from the road to the lake. Uh, And so uh, the upshot of this is that the uh, billionaire and the uh, enormous ranch can stop people from getting to the lake. Uh, Apparently, at one point, the ranch was uh, offering people the ability to pay $100 a day uh, to go fishing uh, on the various lakes uh, that are located within the ranch property. Hmm. Um, And the other interesting part of this is that the uh, trial judge um, had uh, indicated that unlike in other jurisdictions, British Columbia does not have clear uh, public access legislation, which would allow the public to, for example, walk down the trail. Uh, In other jurisdictions, that kind of legislation exists. Uh, And so uh, for land which is not under cultivation, large portions of land, you would have uh, the right to, for example, walk down the trail to get to the lake. But BC just doesn't have that. And so uh, the Court of Appeal concluded that the uh, trial judge was mistaken in his uh, interpretation as to what was owned by the cattle company. And so it's now clearly over to the province of British Columbia to decide, do we want to keep the current state of affairs or uh, should there be uh, an amendment to the Trespass Act, which would grant the public the right to do things like walk down the trail to get to the lake? Uh, the other, I must say, serious blow to the uh, the tiny fish and game uh, club mm. was that the trial judge had granted them um, costs uh, for all of their efforts yes. on the basis that they were public interest litigants and succeeded mm. in getting the public access to these two lakes and the road and the trail. But sadly, uh, the Court of Appeal found that the success of the fish and game club was divided <laughs> because... Well, it's clear that lakes are public, and you're now allowed to drive down the road, given that the pile of logs has been removed. You can't go anywhere on the road. Uh, And so as a result of them not succeeding on the trail argument, the Court of Appeal reversed the cost order. So the Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club is now on the hook for all of their uh, legal expenses and, and, indeed, the cost of the appeal launched by the billionaire. Uh, and so, terrible bad day for the fishing game club, uh, and uh, a bad day for anyone wanting to go fishing on these lakes. Uh, so, perhaps if you're uh, up in the area of the uh, ranch, at the very least, you might want to exercise your uh, your public right to drive down the road. Uh, no doubt that would uh, certainly help get the go to the Douglas Lake Cattle Company, who really doesn't want anyone coming on their property. So, you're now free to drive back and forth on the road to nowhere, Uh, You just don't have any way to get to the actual lake. Is this matter settled, or are there other avenues of appeal that either party could pursue? Well, uh, you could seek leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, but, uh, boy, that's an expensive undertaking. I don't know how many members of the Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club uh, there are. Indeed. But I I think the practical, uh, where it goes over to next, is province of British Columbia. Mm. Are you going to do anything about this? The attorney general was a uh, a party to the litigation because there was this public element to it. Yes. And so I think really the question is now over to the provincial government. Are you going to take the hint from the trial judge and others uh, and pass some legislation which would uh, provide uh, a right uh, to cross over uncultivated 
uh, land like this trail so that people can actually get to the lake? Uh, or uh, as a matter of policy, do you want to leave the status quo, which would mean, I guess, absent a uh, you know, float plane or something, you just don't have any way to get there. I was um, going to ask about air travel. <laughs> yeah, you could probably fly your plane in and land on the lake if that worked. Uh, one of the other arguments which didn't succeed for the fishing game club is that there's actually some federal authority to uh, navigate on navigable waters, like uh, the Fraser River, for example. If you own land on both sides, you couldn't put up a chain and stop anyone from going down the river, right? Um, uh, and so that was argued, uh, but uh, it didn't get traction because you have to look at whether it's uh, practical for people to be using that for navigation. And of course, at one point in the country, the ability to paddle your canoe down a river would be mightily important because really that was the highway. Yes. And so that's the background of the legislation, which uh, does grant the public the right to, you know, paddle your canoe down the river uh, without having to worry about, you know, does the landowner on other side, if they erected a chain or barrier or trying to extract a toll from you or something, they can't do that. You're quite free to, you know, paddle your boat down a place which meets that definition. But unfortunately, these two isolated lakes don't really connect from anywhere to anywhere. They're just lakes with a bunch of fish in them. And even though we all have a tiny share of the uh, fish and the lakes, uh, absent a float plane, uh, all you would be able to do would be drive down the uh, now clearly public road and stare over at them. Yeah, you don't have any actual way to get over there and start fishing. Let's take our break. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers will continue with Legally Speaking right after this. And it's Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. As we continue, Michael, new B.C. firearms legislation introduced. What are we seeing? Yes, so this is uh, something introduced by the province of British Columbia, uh, and it's separate from what's been going on federally uh, where they've been trying to make some changes to buy back assault rifles and things of this sort. This piece of legislation is for the province of British Columbia, and it's a first reading bill which was just introduced by the Solicitor General. The name of it, it's Bill 4, is the Firearm Violence Prevention Act, which is a pretty appealing title. Who, who in the world could be in favor of firearm violence? Uh, and uh, there are uh, a number of provisions in here which probably make some uh, practical sense. There are prohibitions on things like um, selling uh, uh, low-velocity firearms to minors. That's probably a good idea. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a prohibition on not discharging a firearm uh, from uh, inside a vi uh, vehicle or a boat. I guess you don't want people shooting off their boat or out the window <laughs> of their car. What, was that allowed before? <laughs> Apparently. We, oh. we needed to ban that specifically. It reminds me of, a, there's actually a provision in the Wildlife Act that it reminds me of, which prohibits uh, hunting while swimming, which <laughs> seemed to suggest at first reading to me, like, does that really somebody swimming and firing their gun? But no, no, it's that one's actually intended to prohibit shooting like a bear that's swimming across the river rather than prohibiting you from shooting while you're swimming across okay. the river. That makes sense. That took a couple of readings. So this piece of legislation also does a number of other things. It, it tries to regulate um, things defined as a low velocity or imitation firearm. Yeah. And I think what they have in mind here are things like pellet guns yep. or airsoft guns, things like that that look a whole lot like a gun. It could be very frightening. Um, and there would be provincial offenses for things like causing a disturbance, uh, 
you're, you can't uh, carry or use uh, or store uh, like an imitation or low-velocity firearm if this passes in a way that would uh, cause a disturbance in a public place. Like you couldn't go down to, you know, Centennial Square and wave a pellet gun around, right? Naturally, that might yes. be rather disturbing to people. Um, now, there are a number of problems, I think, with the legislation. So hopefully people take the time to, not people, uh, MLAs take the time to read this thing over uh, before moving along with the appealing uh, title. Uh, they include things like a, a really problematic uh, and contradictory definition of what is a low-velocity firearm. As they've currently written it up here, they've defined it to include a thing which uh, is not designed to fire uh, a projectile at more than a speed, 152.4 meters per second. But then there's some confusing wording that also defines it as a thing which is designed to fire something at greater than that speed. So they've, I think, mistakenly drafted this to include to make the definition of a low-velocity firearm include anything from a Red Ryder BB gun to a military assault rifle, not, I think, what was intended here. So there are some, I think, drafting problems to be uh, cleared up. I hope somebody's listening and takes a careful read of it uh, before just passing it based on the name or general principles. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. How did that not get caught? It, I, I must say that there's legislation, if you read it, There's this is the sort of thing that uh, keeps me well employed and busy uh, every day of the week. Fair, <laughs> it, fair. It, this is unfortunately not uh, terribly uncommon, but that is a pretty glaring error uh, in terms of how they defined it. Uh, the other, I think, thing which needs some uh, reflection uh, before they pass something like this is some consideration to the need for fairness and a real uh, review mechanism for some of the things. Yes. Because one of the other concepts here is the idea that the police would be able to seize uh, a vehicle and have it impounded for a period of time uh, if there was a uh, firearm uh, in the vehicle where no one in the vehicle uh, had the required registration for it. I think it's intended to deal with things like, you know, there are a bunch of shady-looking people uh, driving around in a car, and in the car the police discover there's a, you know, gun in the trunk, but you can't really establish, did any of the people know the gun was in the trunk? Yeah. Whose gun was that? The idea would be, hey, you could impound the vehicle, I guess, as some deterrent to make sure you don't drive a vehicle without checking to make sure that that isn't there. The problem with it, as I see it, is that there's no meaningful provision to review that mm. uh, decision. And then even where the person um, produces material and persuades the police officer that they were mistaken, like, for example, goes home and says, oh, yes, here's my registration certificate for the, the gun that was in the trunk. I was lawfully permitted to have that there and transport it. Mm -hmm. And the officer agrees, oh, yes, very good. Okay, well, you can go get your car back indicates that the person still has to pay for the cost of the towing and the storage, which mm. seems awfully unfair if it turned out that what they were doing was completely lawful. Mm. It also seems problematic to me that you would have that sort of authority to seize somebody's property uh, without building in any kind of an appeal mechanism, mm. right? There, there should be some mechanism whereby some third party could review the police officer's decision without requiring the thing to go to a judicial review in the Supreme Court, which, of course, is going to be an uneconomic and impractically slow remedy when the police have taken your car for a month or two, right? And you're waving around, here's my <laughs> certificate. This yes. isn't fair. Give it back. You should have a, 
uh, a meaningful mechanism for some third party to review the decision. And that should be in accordance with the nature of the decision. If you make it uh, practically impossible for people, it leads to arbitrary outcomes uh, and unfair outcomes, like requiring the innocent person who persuades the officer that they were mistaken and had everything that was required to nonetheless bear hundreds of dollars in towing and storage expenses. That's just not right. And so hopefully somebody proofreads this thing uh, and cleans up the mistakes in it in the draft Mm. and gives some consideration to uh, making it uh, fair and putting in a mechanism so that if there's a mistake, that can be remedied without an unduly expensive uh, process. So would these be criminal infractions or how would it work? Uh, Interestingly, no. This would, these would be provincial offenses, but not criminal offenses. Hmm. The, the car thing is interesting because there's actually currently an offense to be a criminal offense, to be a passenger in a motor vehicle knowing that there's a, like an unregistered firearm. Mm-hmm. There's actually a very similar thing which is already there, but uh, there would be higher standards of proof and, and so on. So I think this is designed to allow sort of summary police activity, like yes. we're taking the car because we found you had a, you know, improperly stored, you know, ammunition in the trunk or something. I think that's the idea, uh, which, you know, maybe that's okay public policy, but you have to be, uh, you have to weigh up, um, you know, what do they say? You can have fast, cheap, and good. Uh, you don't want to have too much on the, uh, um, you don't want to give up too much of the sort of the fairness uh, element of it uh, in your rush to try to uh, achieve some desirable objective. Indeed. Um, we have one more story to talk about. Five minutes left on the clock. It has to do with wills and Section 56 of the Wills, Estates and Succession Act, if we're done talking about the uh, low-velocity firearms. Yes, I think this is one that people should be aware of because it could affect a lot of people in a significant way. Uh, what happened here is you had a fellow, a young man, uh, sadly. Uh, he was a member of the military, um, He uh, and he passed away, sadly, in a car accident uh, back in 2016. He was only 28. Um, and what happened is that uh, he had separated from his common-law uh, spouse. She'd moved away uh, about 18 months prior to that, uh, his uh, sad passing. Um, and... The way the Wills, Estates, and Secession Act operates is that if somebody who is in a marriage-like relationship for at least two years, so it qualifies, the person becomes a spouse. But if you um, separate uh, from your spouse, uh, then provisions in your will, which would provide that they would receive a gift or be appointed as an executor, are invalidated. Uh, by operation of Section 56 of the uh, Wills, Estates, and Succession Act. And so that's what arose here. Um, and the, the, uh, what happened is that the uh, service member's mother uh, would have uh, wound up becoming the executor and presumably inheriting his um, assets. And his former common-law spouse was going to court to try to uh, get those things. Uh, she wanted them. And so it produced this uh, litigation where the judge had to sort out, you know, was this relationship uh, in fact terminated uh, or not? And that can be messy. Uh, Here, I think there was some pretty clear evidence that the relationship was over, including that the um, person who was the claimant, the uh, common-law spouse, had moved away 18 months earlier to uh, another uh, location. Mm -hmm. There was a written agreement confirming that they intended to separate 
that there was a child, that he was paying child support as required, that she filed income tax returns saying that she was single. Um, it, you know, it seemed pretty clear that yes. this was over. She made arguments saying, well, look, he came to, you know, he paid child support and would come for um, events like Halloween and so on to spend time with his child. She tried to argue that that relationship was not uh, over. Uh, but ultimately, there was, I think, lots and lots of evidence that, in fact, it was. And so that's the, the outcome there. The takeaways here include if you wind up getting married or relationship ends, you should pay some careful attention to your will and reflect upon the need to update it. Um, otherwise, you could wind up with this kind of a completely unsatisfactory circumstance where there's ambiguity about was the relationship over, what did the person intend, uh, and you could wind up with a result that you really didn't want. Um, the other interesting thing about this case, just by way of a, a general note, mm -hmm. is that because the, uh, the young man who died was a member of the armed forces. He had what was described as a military will. Hmm. And there are special provisions in the Wills and Estates and Secession Act that allow an active member of the Canadian Armed Forces, or indeed various other people, including an ally of Canada, there isn't a good question, hmm. uh, while on active service, to enter into a will doing away with some of the general requirements. Like, there's no need for the will to be witnessed. It can be signed by the service member. And you're contemplating here, of course, things like it's times of war and somebody's yeah. in a foxhole writing out, you know, I want so-and-so to have my home. Uh, you want to uh, give uh, effect to those desires. And so that's another interesting thing is that there are special provisions for uh, active members of the armed forces to create a will which will be given effect even if you don't have some of the things which you would ordinarily have, uh, like people witnessing it. Uh, there are even provisions for military members so that you can have a will signed by another person. Yes, that, that has to be witnessed, where the armed forces member was unable to sign it, right? So you can imagine some tragic circumstance where a person saying to their, you know, comrade, look, I want my son to get my car, write it down, sign it. That's going to be given effect. So the general theory of all these things is we try our best to give effect to what people want. Yes. But if you don't keep your will updated, you can wind up with these unfortunate, confusing circumstances where there's ambiguity in litigation. And so you want to do your best to uh, avoid that uh, for your beneficiaries. So if you get married or you get separated, uh, update your will, and that may save a lot of people a lot of grief. Legally speaking on CFAX 1070 during the second half of our second hour every Thursday with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, a pleasure. Thank you for your time as always. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Make sure you stay safe. All right. Will do. Thanks so much. Until next week.